It's Home Court Press, Utah Jazz Talk with Brian Priest and McCade Pearson. The Jazz wrap up week two of the NBA schedule, sitting at four and three after losses to the Suns and Nets with victories over San Antonio and the Los Angeles Clippers. Is it time for Quinn Snyder to consider a more defensive approach on his guard line as the Utah Jazz continue to struggle defending elite NBA guards? But first, former Jazz man Dante Exum suffers another injury setback in Cleveland, and are rumors about potential NBA expansion true? Stay tuned as all that and more is coming up next on Home Court Press, Utah Jazz Talk. Welcome into Home Court Press. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined as always by McCade Pearson. McCade, how you doing today as we get ready to talk about week two of the NBA and recap everything? We are underway. We're outside of small sample size, but we're not quite to real sample size. Now we're in the period where half the stuff's real and half the stuff's fake, and we've got to try and figure out what's real and what's fake. Yeah, that's the fun. Now we get to parse through everything and figure out, does PER actually matter six games into a season? Does scoring average matter? Really, the only thing that actually matters right now is the wins and losses, right? Yeah, but as is the Western Conference every single year since I was born, it is super, super tight. And every little game shifts in the standings from, hey, you're going to miss the playoffs to, hey, you're going to have home court advantage in the first round. So hopefully that separates a little bit more over the next 65 games. But, uh, it's been a fun, fun season as every team in the West already has two wins and two losses and is separated by just three and a half games. Yeah, with the competitiveness of the Western Conference, fans are definitely left riding the high and low tides, depending on what the last game resulted in. All right, McCade, let's jump right into it. We'll start with news and notes, as we always do on Wednesdays, looking around the league. Rookie point guard Killian Hayes of the Pistons. I believe he was the seventh pick in the draft. He suffered a labral tear in his hip last night. Basically, that's that injury is a pretty big deal. The recovery timeline is to be determined, but would be surprised if Killian Hayes plays much more this year. And that's a tough blow for this young Pistons team, right? Yeah, he's not looked the best, but he was one of the highest prospects coming out of college in the NBA. And so he's the point guard, a lot of on-ball stuff, which usually has a lot longer, slower um, learning curve than other positions. But it's still not great to not get that experience in playing time. So we'll see how long he's out. The Pistons aren't great anyway, so I don't think it impacts the league that much. But uh, not a fun situation for the top 10 pick. Yeah, and that's something that's going to impact the Jazz as they go into Detroit on Sunday this week. So. We'll keep an eye on that, knowing that the Pistons are going to be shorthanded. A former Jazz man, another injury concern looking at the league, Dante Exum. This kid just cannot catch a break. Five years with the Jazz, and besides that first season, basically constant injury struggles for Dante Exum. He is out, it looks like, one to two months with what they're calling a strained calf. But honestly, if you watch the replay of it, I'm going to call this good news that it's a strained calf and not a torn Achilles. Oh, it was stereotypical, plant your foot, come up, lose all weight-bearing power on it, turn around, see who kicked you, and realize nobody was there. Yep. Which, if you talk to anybody, go look at Kobe Bryant, go look at, there's been Kevin Durant, go look at anybody who's torn their Achilles in the last 10 years, 20 years, even going back 30, 40 years, you get kicked in the back of the foot, and then you turn around and you realize nobody kicked you, and that's how you know, and that's exactly what happened to Dante, so... Great, great, great news for Dante. Hopefully this isn't a big deal long-term. We've said that before, though. 
And so, but hopefully he's back on the court. He's playing really, really well. He's starting at small forward for the Cavaliers and a big reason why they were off to a good start. He shut down Trey Young the other night and the Cavaliers beat the Hawks. And so just another awful injury for Dante. Wishing the best. So Dante Axum has been the perimeter defender that the Jazz were missing earlier this year? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> oh, man, he shut down Trey Young the other night. Like, I think Trey had like 16 points. And Dante, as I said, Dante's playing 30 minutes a night for a small, uh, small forward, which is kind of weird. So, yeah, he's been awesome this year. I don't know where I stand on the Exum-Clarkson trade right now. We don't need to get into that. But, yes, Dante Exum would be a great perimeter defender for the Jazz right now. I think David Locke, actually, the last couple of years, talked a lot about Dante Exum possibly playing some small small forward minutes and the Jazz trying to capitalize on what he can do defensively. So that doesn't really surprise me that he's been playing that time for the Cavs. His efficiency has been really good to watch. I just, I really feel for this kid. I mean, all accounts are that he's a great person, always good to talk to in the locker room, always to give you some good insight. He's a good teammate, and you just hate to see him suffer so many injuries. And, you know, I started to feel like last year before the Jazz traded him that it, he was almost at that point where he needed a change of scenery. He needed to be in a different place just to fight through the the mental handicap that some of these injuries will cause. And now he's in Cleveland and going through some of the same stuff. It just heart goes out to the kid. Hopefully he's able to work through, get get into the rehab and get back on the floor. That's really all you want for Dante Exum. Another guy who is out for health and safety protocols in the NBA, Kevin Durant. The Jazz missed him last night in Brooklyn. That didn't matter one bit for the Nets. Uh, right now, he's, it looks like he's going to be out four games, but there's not really a lot of clarity on that situation, which surprises me with as good as the NBA did with their protocols in the bubble I thought that they would be more clear and straightforward with how they would handle COVID positive tests, contact tracing, and things like that. And it is early. It's only the second week of the season, but it it does seem like there's a little more variance than I expected. Yeah, this is something interesting to keep down for the Jazz um, with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert because Kevin Durant did test positive back in July, and so we're pretty sure he's not positive right now. Sounds like someone in his household is. Um, And so just kind of how this Let's watch and see how does already testing positive, but having someone in your house test positive and all that fun stuff, how long do you miss? How does that affect a superstar? And then we'll kind of know what to expect if something happens with Donovan or Rudy. Um, but, yeah, it didn't matter last night. I did like what Steve Nash did. He basically started the game with Kyrie in the bench, which I've said before, and people think I'm crazy, like, oh, bring Rudy off the bench, or, oh, start everyone bad with Rudy and then just have the bench be really good. And it's kind of what Nash did last night, and it worked because Kyrie went off. And then the bench came in with our bench, and then they just kept going. And next thing you know, we were down 30. So interesting little quirk there from Steve Nash that I like because of Kevin Durant missing. Just wanted to point that out. Oh, I think it's a good philosophy to go with that can work for a couple of games, but I don't think it would work over the course of a season. We obviously saw last night that the Jazz weren't prepared for it, that whether they were just relaxed knowing that Kevin Durant was not going to be playing or what the case was. They just weren't ready to face whatever the Brooklyn Nets were doing last night. Last thing in the news and notes, McCade, there's been a lot of buzz around the league about potential expansion coming up in the next two to three years. And for a a league that's looking for an influx of cash, the pandemic has affected everybody. And and some leagues, some teams, 
more than others. And so the NBA, they need money. There are some owners that are cash-strapped and are really hurting right now. So potential, it looks like maybe two expansion teams at about $2.5 billion each. The Jazz just sold to Ryan Smith for $1.66 billion. Timberwolves, I believe, are the only team currently on the market for sale, and they're expected to go for a little less than the Jazz did. So $2.5 billion seems like an awful lot to get an expansion team and drop into a place like Seattle, Las Vegas, maybe Louisville. Tampa Bay is hosting the Raptors right now. Last time we saw a city host a team, they ended up getting a team a couple years later. So what do you think about these expansion conversations? Yeah, first of all, it sounds like it's more going to be like an auction starting at $2.5 billion. So, and Vegas is a pretty fun hotspot. And then Seattle, they're getting the crowd. So actually, funny enough, Seattle and Vegas both just got expansion teams in the NHL, right? Yeah. Uh, my other questions here are, one, are they going to do it the same year? Are they going to do it back-to-back years? The NHL is doing theirs two years apart, three years apart. Seattle starts this coming season in like nine, ten months, and this is going to be Vegas' third season. So they're about three, four years apart. But do they do it at the same time? And if so, what does this five and a half, um, six billion dollars Because it's going to be a little more than $2.5 billion for those cities, especially Vegas. Um, what can that do to help the league financially? And then you get into all the sorts of fun stuff of, okay, well, what are the Jazz situation? Who do they protect? All that, you know, expansion's fun. Um, I think it's a good idea for the league. Honestly, from my perspective, this league, has way not this league, but this world has way too many talented NBA potential players. They can expand rosters from 30 teams to 32 teams and not take a fall. Because we saw in the mid 90s, the NBA added a whole bunch of teams in the late 80s, early 90s, and the mid 90s were just awful. You even asked Michael Jordan, like, "Yo, what do you think of your 72 and 10 season?" He's like, "Dude, we had like three expansion teams. It was the easiest season ever." And so I do think now that it's been 30 years since the NBA got to 29 teams that they are in a very, very well-positioned place to add two teams and still be just fine talent-wise. Yeah, I think there's more than enough talent around the world. There's more than enough talent already in the league. Like We we spend so much time looking at the back end of the Jazz roster and the 11 through 15 guys with the Jazz. 11 through 15 would make an NBA roster for pretty much any team in the league. And we see that on the back half of every franchise. Is there's guys who could be playing legitimate NBA minutes, 15, 20 minutes, getting some extra time, some ability to develop. The only question I'd have with this, and this is getting the really nerdy cap stuff, which, you know, I love to do. Yes, you is, do. So the NBA and the CBA, which is going to end in a couple years anyway, so this could change. Expansion teams only get 80% of the salary cap and then 90% their second year and then 100% their third year. So that puts them way behind. They're not allowed to get the number one overall pick for four years. So that puts them way behind. And basically, it's just impossible to build a good team within a decade of an expansion team. It takes eight to ten years. I mean, we saw with Charlotte back you know, a decade and a half ago, it took them, what, nine years to even make the playoffs? Meanwhile, over in the NHL, they decide not to really do anything, and Vegas made the Stanley Cup Finals in their first season, and now we'll see how Seattle does here in the next 18 months. But I wonder if the NBA, specifically the bidders, try and negotiate a better starting point for the expansion teams than what has previously been set, because how they're currently set, it's a decade to even get up and running. So that's something I don't even know if to keep an eye on. we still got to see if they're expanding and when the timing and all that is. It usually takes two or three years to get everything processed, but 
where that team comes in between, okay, we're going to be awful for a decade and we're going to make the finals in our first season, I think there's going to be a middle ground there. It's going to be renegotiated. All right, McCade, we're going to take that opportunity to go to a quick break. Before we do, the ESPN.com power rankings came out. The power rankings came out right before the loss to the Nets. So, Jazz now 4-3. and three. They were 4-2 and two at the time, right in front of the Pacers and right behind the Phoenix Suns. So when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about these power rankings, and then we'll, we'll talk about a few different things, Jazz. What is it that's going to push this Jazz team to being truly great? We've got some conversation we want to talk about the Jazz and their lack of an ability to, or at least a willingness to force turnovers. And then we've got some Twitter questions from a few listeners that we wanted to address. So thanks for listening to Home Court Press, and we'll be right back. Hey, listeners. Wanted to tell you about something that I discovered recently that's pretty cool. It's called Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes gift-giving easy and simple. You tell them who you want to give gifts to, you set a budget, and then they select, buy, and ship your gifts automatically to every occasion while you have that peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save some money since the software continuously monitors the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www needed, no .com, just type joyful.gifts in your browser, and you're set to go. Welcome back to Home Court Press. Brian Priest joined by McCade Pearson, as always. Now we're talking Utah Jazz, and the real question of the day as we do our weekly recap, what is it that's going to push the Jazz to greatness? McCade, you had a really good tweet last night that I saw, and I just wanted to read this tweet to you, and then we'll just kind of discuss it and see where we're at at the end of the conversation. What you wrote is, there is no heat in this franchise. Quinn Snyder, Dennis Lindsay both feel safe as can be. Rudy, Donovan, Jordan Clarkson, Royce O'Neal are all signed for four-plus years. Bojan and Favors for three. Ingles doesn't care about his next contract. They have nothing really pushing them. They are all content. I so, thought this was a really interesting statement from you, McCade. read it like that, it sounds a lot more intense and mean than I meant it to be. <laughs> You know what? I don't even need to explain what I thought about it. Let's let's go right to you. What did you mean with this? Yeah, well, I did have a second part of the tweet because, you know, Twitter character limits all that fun stuff. I said, and I get it. They want to win a title. That is nice. I would love that. But why you should be chasing something, it's also nice to have something to run away from as well. Everything in balance. So I think, because I don't think this is extreme, like, oh, they don't care. They're just here to make their money and move on with their lives. And I don't think that's true. But I do think this group's looking at the season going, okay, we're going to play 300 games with each other over the next four years. Does this one game really matter in that big scheme of 300 regular season games and 25 playoff games, 30 playoff games? It, you know, we could take tonight off. And that's a little obviously a little more subconsciously than them saying, hey, let's go out and not play well tonight. But I do think that is true that, you know, we've, we saw this exact same team last year, minus favors, who'd been here the previous eight, nine years anyway. Quinn feels pretty comfortable in his job. You know, anyone who brings up on Twitter, you know, it's a time to move off from Quinn. They just get torn apart and don't get listened to. And I get that. Quinn's been great for eight years. Dennis has been here for eight, nine years. Hey, he feels super safe. Let me let me stop you on Quinn real quick. So yeah. that that's something that's been raised, you know, should should Quinn feel so safe in his job? And while I, I agree with you that he does, 
We look across the league and to the Eastern Conference, the Milwaukee Bucks and Mike Budenholzer. This is a Bucks team with Giannis that has been, I think, the number one seed in the East the last two or three seasons, but has continually come up short in the, the playoffs. And Budenholzer's name was thrown around last offseason as a potential for being fired. And and I think that that's a decent comparison for what Quinn Snyder has been with the Utah Jazz. Not saying that Quinn Snyder should be fired or deserves to be fired or anything like that, but the comparison of a very successful regular season team struggling in the playoffs, that's basically what the Jazz have been during the Quinn Snyder era as well. Yeah, and the thing is, since the Jazz moved to Utah 40 years ago, they've never fired a coach, not once. You know, you had... A couple early, and then you get into the Jerry Sloan era, and then you didn't fire Ty Corbin, you let his contract run out, and then you have Quinn. So you really only had, you know, Frank Layden. You've had four coaches in 40 years, and you haven't fired any of them. And I don't think the Jazz will fire Quinn. That's not where this is going. But it would be nice to have some heat and be like, dude, you've had the exact same playoff exit four years in a row now. It's looking like it's going to be a fit this year. Like, we got to do something. And the thing is, if the Jazz are truly trying to break through that ceiling, okay, you've tried how many trades all with Cleveland, right? You've tried draft picks. You've, you've done all these things. To, you've traded for Mike Conley. You've done all these things to break through the ceiling. Okay, what's the next, oh, crap, what do we want to do now to try and break through the ceiling? And you're not trading Rudy. You're not trading Donovan. You know, trading Clarkson or someone like that isn't going to shake up your franchise tremendously. And so it kind of goes back to, okay, well, now the last kind of thing we can do is fire Quinn. And so I don't think you're going to hire a coach better than Quinn necessarily. It's really hard to find good coaches and Quinn's a really, really good coach, but having that pressure in there of, Hey, we need to perform is good for both Quinn and for the players because players have Quinn's back. And if they need to perform and get some wins and really go for it and have something to motivate them, saving Quinn's job might be something to motivate them. I want to be careful saying all this because everything in balance. And I don't, I'm not saying Quinn's on the hot seat or we need to fire Quinn or anything like that, but a little heat of, Hey, and we started to see it around the league. Some people wrote some articles of, hey, should Quinn be on the hot seat? It's been eight years now, you know, da, da, da. So the questions are there, and I do think they need to be reasonably asked. You were going to say something? Doesn't the ownership change the transition from the Millers to Ryan and Ashley Smith organically add a little bit of heat because things are different, because the structure at the top is changing? naturally some things will trickle down. It's not trickle-down economics. This actually does happen. And so I just wonder, is that Ryan Smith coming in, is that going to bring the heat that you're talking about? You would hope so, but here's the weird thing about the Ryan Smith transition is I don't know if this is the right analogy to use. It feels kind of weird to use, but like Ryan Smith as an NBA owner is almost like the Miller's kid. Like He's growing up with the Jazz, with the Millers, with living in Utah, playing junior jazz. So, like, he's almost grown up in the jazz culture himself, which I think makes a weird, interesting aura around the organization that he's almost like the Millers. We will see. Um, I'm really excited. He just appeared on the Woj pod this morning. I'm going to go listen to that right after we finish recording and see how he kind of goes in there. But, like, he hopefully does come in and say, he's, I want to win a championship. I can do crazy things and just everybody be on edge. I'm not going to fire anybody right now, but everyone just be on edge because we're going to go for a championship. And that could be a very good, healthy internal pressure of a new owner. I listened to most of that podcast this morning. And the thing that I took away from it is he really does run this from the mindset of how can everything be the best experience possible? You know, he, he made his fortune 
on an analytics-based company with Qualtrics, and he's bringing that analytics-based thinking to the Utah Jazz. And so he's, I think he is going to be willing to ask the tough questions. You know, is this the best that we can be? Has this path that we've chosen gotten us where we would like to be, or can we be better? And I, that's just my impression, my takeaway from his appearance on that Woj pod that you mentioned. I think he's going to be a good thing for this franchise. I think he's willing to ask the tough questions. It really comes down to, is he going to be able to make the tough decisions after those difficult questions have been asked? Yeah, because there is a path where the Jazz don't make a move for like the next five years. I mean, we're already in a tough position with draft picks and assets and all that fun stuff. Contracts are super long. We're... Dennis Lindsay can't really do much. The Jazz are just going to be who they are for the next four or five years. And then if you keep Quinn on the bench for four or five years and you don't make a drastic trade of like Rudy or Donovan or somebody, then you're going to be the exact same team for five years. And that does get a little dull to an extent where there's just no heat in the kitchen. There's no driving force other than let's win a championship, which is a good thing. Let's go win a championship. But, you know, when things get tough and that seems a little bit more unrealistic, then what's your driving force? And that can spiral. So, We'll see. I don't want to overreact to this tweet, but I do think that there is a little bit of contentness in this team that's already been together for theoretically four or five years. Ever since they drafted Donovan, really, this team's been pretty much the same, and now all of a sudden they have their long contracts to still be the same for another half decade. As a fan of a team in the Chicago Cubs that went through something kind of similar, the big difference being that the Cubs actually won a World Series championship, but they, they had this very young core that they brought up, they raised all these guys together, and they all grew together. They won a title, and then since 2016, they've all just tried to run it back every season, and there's definitely a case of if you have too many of the same guys together for too long, there's just an apathy that starts to to seep in, and I don't think the Jazz are being apathetic right now, but I think they they do risk because of the way they've structured their roster. And you know that the top half of this roster is going to be in place for two or three seasons at a minimum unless something drastic changes. I think that it's important. You have to walk a line between, okay, we maybe we have a good locker room culture. We've got a bunch of guys that enjoy playing with each other, that like each other off of the court. We're winning some games, but we're not having a lot of success in the in the playoffs. There, there's got to be a time where they actually consider making some of those changes. You take, I think it's that take one step backwards to take two steps forward type of a route, and that's something that not necessarily this year, but maybe next year or the year after, the Jazz might have to look at if this experiment bringing in, bringing back Derek Favors and trying to shore up the front line doesn't work this season. Yeah, and that's why the conversation naturally leads back to Quinn, because you're not going to trade your stars. Your other players aren't going to have that much value to be anything drastic. And so, you know, if the Jazz go be the five seed and lose in the first round in seven games again, then you're looking at five straight years. And then I think that he gets up on Quinn, and then you have a great year next year, something like that. You know, there's a very realistic path of the heat comes, there's pressure, there's talk about maybe firing Quinn, and that leads this team to greatness. And we never fired Quinn. And I think that's, you know, probably the best route we all want, right? That's the route that leads to a championship, probably, most likely. So everything in balance. Let's not overreact and think this is some crazy, we need to blow it up or anything like that. We need to fire Quinn tomorrow. But there, we saw last night with the Nets, it was like, oh, yeah, this is another game in the 72-game season. We're down 16 halfway through the first quarter. Let's just float our way through the game, lose by 35, and we'll play in New York tomorrow. And it's hard to have those games often and win a championship.
All right, McCade, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll look at some of those Twitter questions that we've gotten from a few listeners. Thanks for tuning in today. It's Season 2 of Home Court Press with McCade Pearson and Brian Priest. Home Court Press can be found on any of your major podcatchers, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And please, if you like what you're hearing, remember to share, rate, and review so that we can expand our audience. Home Court Press can also be found on kbear.com. Just go to kbear.com forward slash home court press. Lastly, give McCade Pearson a follow on Twitter at McCadep8. That's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-8. You can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter as well at bpriest24. That's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E-24. As always, thanks for listening to Home Court Press. And take note. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Home Court Press. Brian Priest joined by McCade Pearson, as always. Now, McCade, we just got done talking about the Jazz over the next three or four years and how we can start a fire under this team and and get people playing with a little bit more urgency game to game. Now let's shift gears. We're going to take a look at some Twitter questions that listeners had for us. The first question I've got for you here, McCade, is, and this is something we've talked about a lot, when do you think we're going to see, this comes from Jesse Thane at jthane underscore 91. When do you think we're going to start to see a deeper rotation from the Jazz? Should we see a deeper rotation? And I think specifically, if I could put some words to Jesse here, it's that guard line. It's the perimeter defense. And do is there a point maybe on this road trip, McCade, where we start to see Quinn Snyder go deeper into that bench and, and use Shaq Harrison maybe in the first half. Use me, Oni. Yeah, knock on wood, but we're going to deal with some injuries here in the next month or two. Um, we haven't yet, outside of Derek Favors having a sore knee for the rest of his life, I guess. Um, but you're going to have some injuries, or that Favors knee injury is going to make him miss some games. And you need guys ready to step up. So we're going to see, I don't know if necessarily a deep rotation, but at least a different rotation as guys in this games over the next month or so. Um, but I'd like to see a tense guy play. And I'd like to see a real nice guy play, even though that's Yang getting a dozen minutes instead of six, that we need to see what we have on this bench because we're going to need to stop perimeter players in the playoffs. And we're going to need one of these younger guys to step up and be a legit role player in the near future. We just talked about how this team's kind of locked in the next four or five years outside of Mike Conley being a free agent this summer. And if you let Mike walk, then you need somebody ready to step up because all you really have is your second round draft pick, the minimum exception in free agency. Like you need somebody to step in. And so you need to see what you got on the bench and who's going to do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things. As you know, at some point, these guys are going to have to have playing time. You're going to be forced into it. So why not try it right now and see what you've got? Put Shaq Harrison in in some lineups with Donovan Mitchell and see what they can do together, if they can force some turnovers. Try out the Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors lineup a little bit more. Try and get that six to eight minutes a night. There are definitely some changes that the Jazz are going to make, and that's what an NBA season is. We've got to remember as fans that we are only seven games into a 72 game year. Quinn Snyder is the type of coach that likes to tinker. He likes to adjust and he's going to do certain things, but he's going to do, I think it's safe to say that Quinn Snyder is probably going to have a more thoughtful process in making those changes than most fans would. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, um, and the playoffs are a long ways away, and the Jazz need to show up in the playoffs this year and figure out those issues. So I'm still really, really high and hopeful on Shaq. 
I still really like Yang in the specific in specific roles that he can play in. I'm not the biggest Neone guy, but I think he's fine. He can step in and play some minutes. Aduka, if Favors has to miss a game or two here or there, love to see him. These are things the Jazz can afford to do in their regular season. They have to have solved by the playoffs, and especially by next season, two seasons, three seasons down the line, is they need to start filling out that back into the bench for the next half decade. So we've talked about some of the issues defensively. Do you think those issues, this next question comes from Jesse Thane once again, do you think those issues stem from chemistry type of problems and guys not working well together? I think last year early was a really good example of those chemistry issues with Emmanuel Moutier and Jeff Green, uh, Ed Davis, guys just not really working out with the team. Or is it more of an execution issue? Guys just not being focused, guys not playing with the intensity that they need to. Where do you lean, chemistry or execution? Is it possible to say chemistry in the other direction, where chemistry is just a little too good, which kind of leads to some weird execution at times? Yeah. Yeah, because if chemistry is too good, you might end up in a situation where you're not pushing each other. Yeah, and so we just kind of talked about that. You know, like people hate playing with Jimmy Butler or Chris Paul, but then after they're with him, I was like, oh, I loved him. He's one of my favorite teammates. And Rudy's kind of that same personality a little bit, which is good, but he's kind of tinkered off that personality the last couple of years. And so the chemistry is really good right now, but having somebody to come in and be like, you know, I don't want to say cause locker room issues, but cause that heat, cause that friction we just talked about in the last segment, could be good for the Jazz. And it does, But it does bleed into the execution thing. That at the end of the day, that's where the games are won and lost is during the game. And so you got to hop on the court and play good basketball and do what you're supposed to do, um, which can lead back to Quinn's offense a little bit, having some minor issues and all that fun stuff when the defenders, yada, yada, yada. So I'm going to say chemistry a little bit, but it bleeds into execution. I think we saw last year when Rudy Gobert got diagnosed with COVID, there was a lot of conversation about chemistry issues in the locker room. And we saw once they got into the bubble and these guys were able to be around each other and start working together again, that I, th- I think that actually ended up being a good thing because it forced them to have some conversations. It forced Rudy Gobert to be introspective and think about how his actions and his demonstrative nature on the floor and things like that were impacting guys within that locker room. And I think it ended up being a really good thing. I'm not 100% sure that Rudy signs the new Max deal if those issues don't come to light and they don't they don't work on them and they don't fix them. So, yeah, having too good of chemistry, I think, can, can absolutely be an issue for the Jazz. And last question from our Twitter followers, McCade. I wanted to talk to you about turnovers. This is something that we've identified as an issue with this Jazz team, and it's just not really part of Quinn Snyder's system to force turnovers. This question comes from Trevor Christiansen. Uh, that's at Christiansen okay. underscore E. He's just wondering how the Jazz are doing turnover-wise this year, where they sit in comparison with the rest of the league. And then I'll tack on with that. How can the Jazz improve their standing with turnovers? They wanted to increase the pace, and one of the easiest ways to increase your offensive pace is by forcing turnovers. What do the Jazz need to do there? Yeah, so first of all, they're 23rd on the offensive end in turnovers, which is not good. They're giving the ball up a lot. Sorry, 24th. Um, and then, yeah, we're talking about forcing turnovers, where the Jazz are 28th. Did I click on something? Oh, I lied. So I just said 24th and 28th, right? That yes. was last season. This season, they are 23rd and 30th. So 
just goes to show you how it's basically the same as last year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're 30th right now. They're only forcing turnovers on 11.2% of possessions. For comparison, the Knicks are 28th at 12.6. So there's a big 1.4% gap there. So not only are they last, but they're last by a pretty significant margin. And that just, it's really tough on your defense because as amazing as Gobert is, and as solid as even some other guys' favors is, Joe Ingles has his moments, or some knows better on some players, that you're still letting up shot attempts. Anytime a shot goes up, there's a decent chance it goes in, even with good defense, especially in the NBA where people are just crazy good shot makers. And so when you force a turnover, that's a defensive possession that they don't even get a chance to score. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get there are some, every turnover is not created equal. The Jazz have a lot of turnovers, for example, where they try and throw a lob to Rudy and it doesn't work. And that's almost more like a shot attempt in its own because you know if that pass does get to Rudy, it's going in the basket 90% of the time. Yeah. But overall, forcing turnovers is a good thing. And on the other side of things, it can lead to fast break points, easy layups, you know, some really nice things. And so the Jazz getting that number even up to league average would be huge for their defense and in turn would help their offense a few points. And that's just by playing more aggressive defense. Uh, one of the hustle stats the NBA started tracking about half a decade ago was just tip passes. Uh, I'm trying to remember what they call them. Deflections, I think is what they call them. I believe and so, And the Jazz yeah. were really, really low in that. Ricky Rubio came, and Ricky Rubio is one of the most deflective players in the league. And the Jazz jumped up into the top ten for his two years. And then last year, now again this year, they're right back into the bottom five. And so just having your hands up and deflecting passes and maybe being a little over-aggressive depending on which player you are, um, not off-ball like Donovan's falling asleep off-ball, that kind of stuff, but like especially on-ball, just being a little over-aggressive and knowing, hey, if I get beat, I got Gobert in favors, specifically Gobert behind me, could be beneficial. One person that's really, really, really great at this is Shaq Harrison. He's a defensive playmaker. And why we like solid defensive players, defensive playmakers have a lot of value. You know who's also another defender like that is Robert Covington. Robert Covington is not a great on-ball, shut-you-down defender, not a Tony Allen-type player. He's just everywhere defensively and just totally dominates and controls the whole weak side of the floor getting in passing lanes. And that has a lot of value. Now, the Blazers are 29th in defense because that doesn't impact your total defense. You know, you still want to have good defensive players like Rudy Gobert anchoring the whole thing. But with your secondary defenders, that's not a bad thing to have, somebody just running around causing havoc in passing lanes. So one of the reasons I'd love to see Shaq Harrison more is he's just causing havoc and making plays. Trying to play devil's advocate here, McCade. I mentioned at the top of this segment how Quinn Snyder's defensive system just doesn't focus on forcing turnovers. What it focuses on is staying in front of your guy, staying with your man, and forcing opponents into the middle, into the to the basket where Rudy Gobert can help. If they adjust that and they try and force a couple more steals, you know, I was looking at the stats here. If the Jazz were able to force just two more steals per game, that would vault them into the top 20 in the league and make a huge difference. But if they try and adjust those things, would that force them to adjust their entire defensive system because they're be, they would be more aggressive, they would be out of position? Uh, like that was something that we did see with Ricky Rubio is, yeah, he would get deflections, he would generate steals occasionally, but he also ended up out of position a decent amount of time because he was taking chances and being aggressive and no longer able to stay with his man, and he had to fight to get back into the play. How did the Jazz find a middle ground between getting aggressive defensively with their man but not hanging Rudy out to dry for 30 different possessions a night? Yeah, and the Jazz still finished with the second first-best defenses in their two Rubio years. Um, 
No, so I actually realized cleaning the glass will let you look at all history, all years of an organization's history at once. So under the Quinn Snyder era, we're 29, 22, 14, 27, 5. That's Ricky Rubio's first year. 17, 28, 30 at forcing turnover. That's one of the things that made that initial Ricky Rubio trade for Jay Crowder team to beat the Thunder so fun is they would just force turnovers and get out and run a little, not necessarily run, run, but get out in transition a little bit. And it caused a lot of havoc for that defense. Um, the other side of the coin, though, is, is if you're not going to force turnovers, if you're going to play super conservative on defense, you can't force turnovers on the other end. Because, you know, if you're only forcing 10%, and, but you take care of the ball on the other side and only having 10%, then that's a net neutral, right? They cancel out. And, but the Jazz have been bottom 10 in the league every single year under Quinn Snyder in turnovers. They just turn the ball over like crazy. As I said, they're 23rd this year. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that differential... I think I'll, to, I'll go tweet this out because I don't know it off the top of my head, but it wasn't good. Go check my Twitter after you listen to this. Anyway, when you have that differential that's so negative, it really hurts your overall production because, as I mentioned back in the beginning, getting shots up is very valuable. That's how you score points. Regardless if it's a bad shot's better than no shot, right? And so right now the Jazz are negative 4.7% in their turnover differential, and that's 29th in the league. Ironically enough, depending on when you're listening to this, um, 30th in the league is the Knicks. So we'll see what happens tonight on Wednesday night, how that goes with the turnover differential, because the Jazz really need to see if they can take advantage of that tonight, because if they do, then they'll win by 30. Um, but yeah, just solving one of those the two sides of that coin would be so, so, so valuable to the Jazz as we talk about shortening that quantity of shots taken, because the Jazz have such good quality of shooters that that part will take care of itself. I think that's a really good point that you make because of the Jazz offense and the way it's designed. They throw so many passes that they do turn the ball over more than a lot of teams in the league. And if they can just close that gap between the amount of turnovers that they are giving up and turnovers that they're forcing and just close that gap a little bit, I think would make a big difference for this Jazz team. And it would help them, especially in situations like we have this season where there's no there's no real home court advantage. There's not fans in the stands. So runs can really negatively impact a team. We saw that, that last night against the Nets. The Nets came out hot, got on a run, and the Jazz could never really stop that Nets run. And so being able to force a couple turnovers here and there I think would make a big difference for this Jazz team and being able to stop a run and get back into a game that they've fallen behind in. One other thing that we wanted to talk about today, McCade, is whether home court advantage actually exists this year. I believe there's originally there was announced seven teams would be having fans in the stands. I think that's been cut back to six now. Jazz are one of those six teams. But even with the Jazz, they're having 1,500 fans in the house. It's not your typical home court advantage that we would have seen in previous years. So, McCade, you went and did some research does home court advantage actually exist this season? Yeah, remember in the bubble, it started weird. Like Teams started out super hot at home, and it's like, why it ran a bubble? It doesn't matter at all. And then it kind of evened out in the playoffs. Um, you had, was it the Raptors, I believe, had like nine straight playoff games that the road team won or something like that. But now that we're outside the bubble and moving around again, but without fans, it's interesting to see. So Seth Part now did analytics for the Bucks for a few years. He now works for the Athletic. He looked into this a good amount. You know, once somebody in the NBA analytics world talks about something, everyone kind of does their side projects on it, which is fun to see. So home court advantage in Vegas is usually about three points. If you have two, if you have the jazz playing the jazz in Vegas, the home jazz would be favored by three points. 
which makes sense. That seems like a good reasonable amount. There's obviously you want data to back up something. Vegas has it all because they're trying to make money, right? But this year, it's probably cut back to about one, one and a half because, A, there's just no fans, and that's played a big role in it. One of the things that's been really weird this season is time that a team has been leading by 20 points or more. Normally, it's about 8% of NBA game action. Right now, that number is closer to 13%. So it's just been a ton more blowouts, specifically earlier in games. We saw with the Nets last night where teams are getting up by 20 more and more and then holding on to those leads a little bit better. Um, not necessarily to win. Usually when you're up 20, you win the game, but you're not letting that team come back and lose by five as much. And then when you dive even deeper than that, those 20-point leads are actually coming from the road team. So the home team usually blows out the road team about 15% of the time, and that makes sense. And the road team usually does it about 8 to 10% of the time. But that road team is actually up closer to 15%. We just saw it with the Jazz in San Antonio. We saw it with Phoenix in Utah. The road teams are going into these arenas and blowing out the home team at a far higher rate. And that's what's causing the difference in home road record. It's actually pretty close to 500 right now. And so the question is, how real is that? Is we're now a good chunk into the season. You know, we're, what, seven games in, 30 teams. So we're 105 games into the season. And that's kind of holding steady still. So we'll see what happens in the future. We still have travel. We still have sleeping in hotels. We still have, well, now we have a new rule of, hey, you can only eat at these three restaurants in the city. And so that, you still have that road feel to it. You still have a, seven-game road trip in 10, 12 days, which is crazy. So you still have the home court advantage in that sense. But, yeah, without the crowds, and specifically the empty arenas of shooting that we saw in the bubble go so crazy, it's leading to more blowouts and interesting results there. So we'll keep an eye on that as the season goes on. We're only 100 games into a 1,000-game season. But it is definitely interesting and noteworthy right now. I think that's something you and I – you will keep track of for the podcast being the numbers guy. And it, it is something worth watching. And as teams, as I speculate, teams start to let fans in and let more fans into these games. You wonder if it all kind of stabilized a little bit, if the blowouts will come back to earth. Is there anything else that you had for us today, McCade? No, we're just in full swing. We're two weeks in. The Jazz are in fourth place in the Western Conference. But if they would have lost to the Spurs, they would have been in 11th place. So it just goes to show how important every game is. And, of course, we'll separate more after 72 games than we have seven. But every game is so important if we want a top playoff seed. And that starts with the Knicks tonight in New York. And then off to, where do we go? We go to Detroit, Milwaukee, and Washington, right? Yeah, big, big stretch for the Jazz. They've got the Knicks tonight, Bucks on Friday, Pistons Sunday afternoon, and then the Cavs on Tuesday. The Jazz are just, they've got to continue to put together a good stretch on this Eastern Conference road trip, try and take advantage of some of the teams on their schedule that they probably should beat, namely the Cavs and Pistons, possibly even the Knicks tonight. Cade, where can they find you on social media? Um, at McCadepa, that's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-A. And you can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter, at bpriest 24 That's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E-24. Check out our show that we released just earlier this morning, recapping last night's loss to the Brooklyn Nets. And if you like what you're hearing from Home Court Press, please remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review the show so more people can find it and we can get out more Utah Jazz content. McCade, I think it's time. We're ready to talk NFL. We made it through 17 weeks of the regular season. Somehow there weren't any games that got canceled. We picked three games a week. And as we wrap up the regular season, 
I sit at 25 and 23. You are 24, 22, and 2. For some you reason, you like those ties. Point. We're both two games above 500, but because we're above 500, mine lowers a little bit more. So you beat me off percentage points. So that means I won. We got the playoffs. <laughs> so how we're going to do this is we don't want to choose the same games in the playoffs. So we're each going to choose three games, but they have to be three different, different games. So we're going to do it kind of like a draft, but you get to go first. And then once you pick a game, I can't pick that game and so on and so forth until I'm forced to just pick whatever games remaining. And we're still going to pick it against the spread. We're not going to do straight up or anything like that. And yeah, so basically go draft style. We've got six games this weekend, three on Saturday, three on Sunday. And as I look at this, McCade, oh, this is a tough one. This is really, really difficult, but I think I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have really hit their stride in the last few weeks. The Washington football team still not sure what Alex Smith is going to bring in terms of health. He's been struggling with that calf issue. Now, the Washington football team's defensive line really scares me, but I think I'm going to make this my first pick. Number one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers minus eight over the Washington football team on Saturday night. That's interesting. My number one pick would have been Washington plus eight. So interesting little wow. very, very different right there. Um, I think the Bucks win this game, but I think it's going to be an ugly close game. Washington's front seven's really, really good, and Brady's not great under pressure, so they'll figure out how to keep it close. But I do think the Bucks win, but I had Washington plus eight as my number one pick. But I guess I'll go to my number two pick then. Jared Goff, what's going on there? I don't really know. Um the Seahawks are kind of on a roll. They beat the Rams a couple weeks ago in an important game to win the division. So I'm going to take the Seahawks. ESPN says minus three and a half right now. You have minus four on your sheet. So I'll take the minus four um, or whatever number. And I got the Seahawks winning and covering the spread. Man, you, you are already outpacing me big time. That was a great pick. I should have probably made that one. <laughs> but we'll, we'll move on. My second pick... Um, Man, give me the Saints. I I like this Saints team. Drew Brees is back looking healthy. They are at home taking on a surprise Bears team. They back their their way into the playoffs. So give me the Saints minus 10 in New Orleans against the Bears. That was my last choice. I think the Saints win, but 10 is a huge number for a playoff game. It is. It really is. Um, My third game. (laughs) Shout out to Trevor, who's a diehard, diehard Titans fan. I grew up down the street from him asked the question about turnovers anyway the titans are three-point underdogs at home to the ravens and the titans worked the ravens in the playoffs last year i don't know who wins this game and i wish this number was three and a half but give me the titans plus three um because i just don't see a way this game isn't close down the stretch and the titans are at home both teams are in five the ravens have won their last billion games in a row but they also haven't really played anybody the last half of the season so, interesting game here, but a home underdog, I'm going to go with them most of the time, as I would have with Washington. I think you're better at this than I am once we've gotten into the playoffs. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> you're, you're running away from me right now. I like both of your picks. Uh, the last one I'll take, so we're, we're sitting between the Browns and Steelers and the Colts and Bills. Um that Bills defense has looked really, really good over the last few weeks. They they might even be the best team in the league. So give me the Bills minus six and a half as they take on the Colts. The only thing that worries me about that is the Colts defense is really good. 
DeForest Buckner's been a force in the middle of that defensive line. And so that kind of scares me, but I think the Bills have played so well and their defense has stepped it up another level that they should be able to cover this six and a half. And then that leaves me taking the Steelers over the Browns. The spread right now is six. It might change. It might get postponed a couple of days. The Browns are having a lot of COVID issues. We'll see what happens. Whatever it is, I'll take the Steelers side of it. The Browns just beat the Steelers, you know, half a week ago. But Big Ben didn't play. I think the Steelers figured it out. I don't love the Steelers long term. They've had some issues um, down the last five, six weeks of the season. But they can at least get past the Browns' first playoff appearance since I was uh, five years old, I believe. Well, that's I don't impressive. Think I've never watched a Browns playoff game, to be honest. <laughs> I know that the Derek Anderson led Browns many years ago didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, that had to be. Have the Browns made the playoffs since they they moved to the original iteration? Moved to Baltimore? Yeah, right when they came back, they made it in I think '04. Oh, okay. So, I think that might be it. Maybe there was one or two play potentials in that span. But yeah, we'll see what happens there. So pulling it back. Not only did we go every other, but every other game chronologically we went to. So I got the Seahawks minus four on Saturday afternoon, and then I got the morning game on Sunday, Titans plus three, as well as the Sunday night game, Steelers minus six. And I have the Colts going into Buffalo, losing to the Bills minus six and a half. I've got Tampa Bay favored by eight over the Washington football team, and give me the Saints minus ten as they take on the Bears. So I'm taking a bunch of favorites this week, and you are taking two underdogs. So if we just would have gone straight up six, we have chosen every game the exact same except for the Buck-Washington one? Um, like, would you have taken the Titans over the Ravens? I, pro- yeah, probably. Yeah, so see, this is fun doing it where we have to pick different games. Otherwise, we would have only had one game to watch this weekend. You had a good idea with this draft, McCade. All right, big week in the standings is we're basically tied. Let's see where we go. Basically, tied means I'm ahead by percentage points. Two of the best words in the English language. Percentage points. You know it. All right. Thanks for listening to Home Court Press, and take note.